0: Please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 19. This will be our New Testament reading before Judges 7 text. We will read verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's turn now to Judges, chapter 7. Judges 7, we'll read verses 9 through 23. That same night, the Lord said to him, Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, He worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as beth toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Amen. You may be seated. I love the line in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when it says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for low. His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. See, it's not that the devil is not a powerful enemy, that the devil is not a terrible enemy, an enemy full of malice and hatred who would love nothing better than to see our bodies and our souls destroyed for eternity. He is all of those things, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us foe. Well. And his craft and power, frankly, are great and armed with cruel hate. In fact, on earth is not his equal. And if we in our own strength tried to confide, our striving would be losing. But we don't, do we? When we set the power and the malice of the devil next to the power and mercy of the right man who's on our side, Christ Jesus, the man of God's own choosing. The Lord of hosts his name from age of eight to age the same. Well, then we remember that he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And so the Prince of Darkness Grim we tremble not for him. His doom is sure. See, that sense of perspective, the grim, imposing might of the enemy, on the one hand, looking at that honestly, full in the face, and yet seeing how it just crumbles away and vanishes in an instant before the onslaught of the Lord who is fighting for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what this part of Gideon's history is teaching us. And that's what I hope to to show us from the narrative tonight as we take this passage in three parts, first of which we're going to call bursting the bubble, verses 9 to 15. Second, raising the cry, verses 16 to 20. And finally, joining the victory, verses 21 to 23. So bursting the bubble, raising the cry, and joining the victory. When you're reading Bible history, one of the things you ought to be looking for is themes. Themes that keep coming up again and again uh, in a story and across different stories. We might call them uh, motifs, is another word for this, or another uh, related idea. Um, you think about in a piece of music, uh, the themes and the motifs um, often intermingle. You might have a little snatch of the melody that keeps coming back over and over. Uh, uh, and then maybe another one, and sometimes they play off of each other. And the same thing happens in Bible history. Uh, there's one writer on Judges named Lillian Klein. Uh, Help me see here in Gideon's story the interplay... Um, between two particular themes or or maybe motifs in Gideon's story, which is the the motif of fear and the motif of nighttime. Fear and nighttime often come together in Gideon's uh, story. Going back to chapter 6, when was it that Gideon carried out God's orders to destroy the altar of Baal? Well, it was at night. Why? Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, it said. Uh, in a little while, of course, we're going to see the Midianite army thrown into a panic of fear. And it's no accident that, that attack also happens at night. Um, that attack that depends on inducing fear and panic in the enemy. And uh, this writer, Lillian L- Klein, points out that, that nighttime is often associated in this narrative with Gideon's fear and doubt. Um, you think also of the fleece that he puts out overnight. Why is that? It's because he's struggling with his faith. He needs to be reassured that God really means what he says. And the reassurance of God's answer comes when? It comes in the morning. When the Lord has given him the sign that he asked for. Well, In verses 9 and 10, that, that same theme continues, the interplay of those two themes, actually. It says, that same night... The Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid... This is especially striking because, as we saw last time, uh, when the Lord wanted to reduce Gideon's army to a smaller size, who were the first people to be sent away? First people to be sent away in accordance with the military rules of Deuteronomy 20, whoever is fearful and trembling... You can sort of imagine Gideon giving that order and thinking, well, I'm fearful and trembling, but uh, somehow I don't think the Lord meant for that order to apply to me. The commanding general of this army who's supposed to lead the remnant, whoever it happens to be, into battle. And remember that the Lord could have chosen anybody. He could have chosen one of the remaining uh, 10,000 we were not uh, fearful and trembling to lead this army. But he didn't. He chose Gideon. And that was on purpose. The Lord deliberately chose someone he knew from the outset was a timid, reluctant person. A man, as we saw a few weeks ago, who was of little faith and very much afraid. And he chose Gideon deliberately so that through the weakness of Israel's leader, just as much as through the weakness of Israel's army, it would be unmistakably clear that Israel's victory was up to him alone. And now, knowing Gideon's weakness, the Lord moves towards him once again in mercy and patience. It says, Gideon, if you are still afraid, after everything that I've told you, after all the promises that I've given you, after all the signs I've already shown to you, everything you've asked, if after all that you are still afraid, and I know you are, because I know your heart, Gideon, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. You shall hear what they say. If you won't take my word for it, why don't you go and listen to what the Midianites are saying and see if that will convince you. Um, In what follows, something that we can notice is that the Lord is work here not not only in the big movements of nations and armies, but in the individual hearts and minds, not only of his own people, but even on the other side. That's how how sovereign, that's how mighty, that is how... um, powerful the Lord is. So what has God done here? Well, he's given a dream. He's given a revelation, in fact, to one of the enemy troops uh, sleeping on the very edge of the Midianite camp. And not only has he given that man a revelatory dream, he's given another soldier in the same tent the supernatural ability to interpret that dream. And you know it's supernatural because uh, it's so off the wall from a Midianite point of view. Here they are camped in the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And you'd have to think, they're feeling pretty secure. Um, they know there is no enemy force close by that can come anywhere near matching their military might. There just isn't. There isn't another army out there this size. And by the way, just think about Gideon creeping down uh, to spy things out. And what his first response would have been as he saw all of those watchfires spread out in that valley, just the sheer multitude of this army that he's supposed to go and defeat. And you imagine him going down thinking, okay, Lord, I'm going down to the camp, like you said, and it's really big. This isn't really helping so far, this fear issue that I'm dealing with. And now you think about um, the Midianite side again, why would, why would anybody in the Midianite camp know the name of Gideon? Gideon's not a famous warrior, uh, much less anything remotely like some kind of threat to their big expeditionary force camped out in this valley. But these two men just happen to have this special insight, and it just happens to be to their particular tent that Gideon and Pura just happen to crawl up, crawl up um, just as the first man just happens to be telling his dream uh, to his roommate, bunkmate. Now, think about other parts of the Bible um, where somebody interprets somebody else's dream. Uh, what, what are the contexts? What, what kind of people come to mind when you think about dream interpretation of the Bible? Uh, for me, it's, it's Joseph and Daniel. Those are the the people and, and you think those are these great heroes of the Old Testament, Joseph and Daniel. They're they the, the men who are able to interpret the dreams of, say, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar. Well, here I suppose I think we're supposed to feel really the, the dramatic irony that this supernatural revelation, this this dream and its interpretation, are coming to these two Midianite guys. Uh, probably not even particularly important Midianite guys. They're, they're camped on the outskirts of their camp, uh, out of the center of things. But you see, what's happening here is the Lord, who is sovereign, by the way, over the big things and the little things, the grand movements of the armies, and the dreams of this one GI and his friend. The Lord has set the table, as it were, for Gideon to get just the reassurance he needs at this critical moment to be able to follow through on his mission. By putting this dream in the mind of a Midianite soldier and the interpretation in the mind of his friend, the Lord is putting courage in the heart of his servant. The dream itself is kind of comical. One writer calls it absurd, even, where you have this loaf of bread tumbling down the mountainside into the valley. Where did that come from? A loaf of bread knocking down a tent. That just doesn't happen. But that's what happened in the dream. In dreams, strange things happen, right? That's the way dreams are. Um, And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Very specific. See, one of the ways that the Lord has given us to overcome our fear and our doubt is by pulling back the veil and giving us insight into what our enemy is thinking and into what the enemy's destiny will surely be. Few weeks ago in adult Sunday school, we looked at Revelation chapter twelve, and you remember when the dragon is thrown down from heaven? What does it say in verse twelve of that chapter? Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. That's not good. But why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows that his time is short. In Matthew 8, remember the demons come angrily to face Jesus, and they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Catch what they say there. They know that the time is coming when torment will be their final destiny, when they will be defeated. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, one of the ways God gives courage to his fearful saints is by uncovering for us the fear, the terror of the enemy as they anticipate the final judgment at the hands of Jesus. In the uh, chess movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, there's a scene where the little boy is af- afraid of losing before a big tournament, and his dad is trying to reassure him by, by telling him, well, think about all of the other kids. See, they're afraid of you. He says, they are terrified of you. Now, in the context of that movie, that was actually not the right thing for that dad to say at that moment. Um, that's a different story. But I, I think that, kind of taking it out of context, it is a good illustration of, the grander struggle that we find ourselves in as the people of God against the kingdom of darkness and the kind of reassurance that God is giving to us in the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 66, shout for joy to God. And what does it say? Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Something to take away from the story of Gideon is that when you are struggling with fear, when the battle seems fiercest against you, when the odds seem too long, And when everything seems lost, remember that the Lord in his word has taken you down into the enemy camp and he's pulled back the tent flap and let you see they are afraid of Jesus. They are terrified of him. And so if you belong to him, the one who makes the demons shudder and dread the final judgment, then what do you really have to be afraid of? We talked about this this morning, the way that the Lord... Bursts the bubble of the devil. That sense, as we talked about in Sunday school, how the devil wants you to see him as inevitable. And the Lord pops the balloon and shows the spiritual world and the way things really are for the comfort and encouragement of his people. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And that brings us to the second section, raising the cry. I want you to notice a few things about the battle. First of all, notice the imagery of fire and trumpet. Now, when you hear about fire and trumpet blasts happening at the same time in the Bible, think about what that should call to mind. This isn't where your mind would probably immediately go reading the story of Gideon, but think more broadly about that. Again, these themes, these motifs of trumpet and smoke, the trumpet and fire. I hope that it makes you think eventually of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. The trumpet... And that smoke and those lightning flashes on Sinai represented what? They represented the coming of God as the lawgiver and the judge. And now, that same God is coming in judgment against the enemies of his people. And once again, what is their response? It is fear. They cried out and fled. Second thing, notice that the total defeat of Midian in this battle cannot be accounted for merely by this clever strategy that Gideon uses of making his men appear more numerous and powerful than they really are. Um, yes, it's true. It is a clever strategy. And you can see what he's doing here of trying to make it seem like there's an overwhelming force when there's only actually a handful of men. But ultimately, this is not the story of a small group of men overcoming overwhelming odds through a clever strategy. This is the story of the Lord supernaturally overcoming impossible odds by his almighty power fighting for his people through a weak and fearful hero at the head of an utterly inadequate fighting force. That's what the story of Gideon's about. And so the element of surprise and confusion created by the trumpets and the shouting and the torches, that alone is not anywhere close to enough to explain this whole army as numerous as the sand on the seashore, imploding on itself. And the men killing one another and then fleeing wholesale away. That can only be explained supernaturally as the act of the Lord. It was the Lord who was winning this victory. Yes, Gideon and his men are the instruments, but this really can only be described as as the Lord's uh, victory. And that's been the that's been the whole point from the beginning of Gideon's story, right? It's the reason why God whittled the army down from thirty thousand down to three hundred to show as we talked about before that the surpassing power second Corinthians 4 belongs to God and not to us so that no one may boast. Uh, finally notice the way in which that uh, Gideon's men participate in this battle what do they actually do and what can we learn from that in context of the rest of the Bible? Notice that in neither hand do they hold a sword. Now, in one hand is a torch and in the other is a trumpet. They shine a light and they sound a trumpet blast. Light and sound are their weapons. And then what else do they do? Not only light and sound, there's also their their voices. They speak, they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, I want to be careful not to um, allegorize here. This is, this is history that we're talking about. We can't just reduce it completely to the symbolic level. However, we also have to understand that in Bible history, God acts in ways that have symbolic meaning. He acts in history in ways that have symbolic meaning um, for his people at other times. God has providentially orchestrated Israel's history to unfold in a richly symbolic way and hold those things together, that it's real history and that that history itself carries symbolism with it. And that's specifically true here. The manner in which this army wins this battle is very richly symbolic of the way that God's people fight the great macro battle of all history, not by the sword, but by the word. Not by force of arms, but by the open display of the light of God's truth. The light of Shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, we love to sing, and death's dark shadows put to flight. That, in principle, is what's happening here between Israel and Midian. We are children of God, Philippians 2, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, but among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word. Of life. Our task as the people of God is to hold up in the darkness the light of the world and to sound as loud as we know how by the grace of God the trumpet blast of the gospel message with clarity and to raise our voices both in worship and in proclamation. And as for this army, our sword, too, is the spoken word. A sword of the Spirit. A sword for the Lord and for that man of God's own choosing, the right man on our side. That word above all earthly powers, who you know thanks to them abideth. And that is why the Prince of Darkness Prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him and his why and that's why his rage we can endure for lo his doom is as sure as was the doom of this army of midian because that one little word that proclamation that trumpet blast as we hold up the light of the world in the world shall fell him and so though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god has willed his truth to triumph through us. While we come at last to the aftermath of the battle in the valley, which is this great chase of the fleeing Midianites across the land that starts in verse 23, Uh, the men who were sent home earlier in the chapter are now mustered out again, um, not to win the battle while it still hangs in the balance, but simply to join in the victory and mop up. The men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian, it says. Ephraim also is going to be called out in verse 24, which is related to the next episode. Um, but don't miss here that the battle has already been won. Um, these men are not called out as reinforcements to help defeat Midian. They're called out as... The victory is decided. They're being called out as as uh, uh, to, to help to... Um, Finish chasing Midian down and bringing that victory to completion. The people of God as a whole are being given the opportunity to join in what God has already done and enjoy it together. This is one final way, then, that this part of Gideon's history illustrates for us the bigger work, uh, the bigger picture of God's work in history. What had these people from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh and Ephraim done to contribute to this victory? What had they done? Nothing. They'd done nothing. In fact, the Lord had deliberately sent them home so that there would be no doubt that this was a victory he had given to them freely by his grace alone, not one that they earned for themselves. And yet, the other side of that is that now that the Lord has won this victory, they get to join in it by his gracious invitation. What a great picture this is of what God has done for us through Christ. As Christ on the cross, single-handedly fought the ultimate battle. And in his resurrection, won for us the decisive victory against sin and guilt and condemnation and the devil and even against death itself. We had nothing to do with that victory. We did not lift a finger to contribute towards it. We contributed nothing to it as it's been said except for the sin that made it necessary. But you see, now that the victory has been won, the Lord Jesus has said, come and join me. Come and join me in that victory. Come take part in it. Come and be my instruments in my church to carry out my mission by my Spirit for my glory. So we talked about this morning. And that wonderful scene in Revelation 19 of Christ riding on that white horse as the victorious warrior king. What does it say in verse 14? And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so, brothers and sisters, as you go into this week, into the callings God has given you, remember that that is who you are following the Lord Jesus on white horses of your own. That's where you're seated in Christ. You are making your way from this center of the light where it's glowing so brightly in our faces from the pages of the scriptures tonight. You're going from here into a world of terrifying darkness. But don't you forget that the darkness is more terrified of Jesus than you are of the darkness. And let that give you courage. Because God has promised you and assured you in his word that the victory has already been won. And So though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo you, you will not fear. Because God has willed his truth to triumph through you. So let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this great victory that you won through Gideon and his little band of 300 men. Lord, we, like them, are completely inadequate to carry out the responsibilities, the mission that you have given to us. And we, like them, depend entirely on your victory, your sovereign power at work in us and through us. And we pray that you would give us courage Help us to see truly with the eyes of faith the reality of your overwhelming power against the forces of darkness so that we would be bold and uncompromising in our service to you as we participate in the victory that Christ has already won. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.